Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. everybody. It is Friday, the 13th of January in the year 2023. Happy New Year, as this is my first podcast of the year 2023. It has been a good Christmas and New Year's observance over these last few days, last couple of weeks, and hope you also had a good Christmas and New Year yourself, and that the New Year is off to a good start. On this day in 1847, Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, surrendered to American forces. It was under the Mexican rule, and during the Mexican-American War, it was obtained by the United States, and on this day in 1847, Los Angeles surrendered to American forces, ending the fighting of the Mexican-American War. On this day in 1898, the French author and activist Emile Zola issued his famous article, Jacuzzi, defending Captain Alfred Dreyfus and condemning the army establishment that falsely convicted him of treason, and it was published in Paris on this day in 1898. On this day in 1941, novelist James Joyce died in Zurich, Switzerland. And in 1978, on January 13th, politician and vice president Hubert Humphrey died in Waverly, Minnesota. But on this day, the church celebrates the feast day of St. Hilary of Poitiers, an early bishop of the Catholic Church, a doctor of the church, and one of the fathers of the church, who was a staunch defender of the divinity of Jesus, a confronter of the Arian heresy, and a participant, at least in part, of the Council of Nicaea. He was eventually exiled as a bishop because of his adherence to the uh, teachings of Nicaea, but is celebrated today as one of the early fathers of the church, fathers of the council, and a doctor of the church. And it's on that note that I'd like to talk about the dynamic of the, the ecumenical council in the Catholic Church, because what we see today uh, may be disheartening for many people in the Catholic Church. We see a great divide between liberals and conservatives, especially among the bishops, which, by the way, liberal and conservative is not a religious term. It's a political one, but it kind of sums up the misunderstanding of what church teaching and the movements within the church are all about when we refer to someone as liberal or conservative. Oftentimes we use different terms such as orthodox or traditional as opposed to heretical, and we get a a little uh, melodramatic about it depending on which side we happen to be on. But sometimes we even get disheartened by the disagreements that we see among the bishops or the disagreements they have with the Holy Father, or sometimes bishops who either in writing or in rhetoric will be critical of one another critical of the Holy Father, and the Holy Father sometimes being critical of fellow bishops. And sometimes we're disheartened by the debate that occurs among our bishops when it comes to church teaching and the pastoral application of them in their individual dioceses and individual sees and, and in effect, the church throughout the world. And I, for one, am not discouraged by it. It's frustrating to see, but I'm not discouraged by it because one thing we have to remember is, yes, Jesus established the church on the rock that is Peter. But he did not establish Peter as a benevolent dictator and sole authority of the church. He's the highest authority, 
And we don't say that our church is founded on Peter. Our church is not one holy Catholic and Petrine or Pauline. Ours is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The church was founded not on the single authority of Peter, but on the collective authority of all of the apostles together under the unifying leadership of St. Peter. Now, if you think all of those 12 apostles were of the same mind, the same personality, and were always in agreement, think again. I mean, we have Thomas, who was, we call him the doubter, but he was a man who asked a lot of questions. Some people who like to emphasize authority may not like someone who asks a lot of questions. We have St. Paul, let's add a 13th apostle here, who was a very intellectual scholar, an educated man, and Peter was a fisherman, not as highly educated as Paul. We have Simon the Zealot party member. One might say he was of a a militant class of people, obviously very single-minded, perhaps, in the way he approached his faith. We have two sets of brothers. And if you don't think there was sibling rivalry among them, or perhaps more personal disagreements when disagreements occurred among brothers, again, think again. You have Matthias, who was a Johnny-come-lately He wasn't there as long as the other ones were, and one can perhaps think he was reminded of that on a regular basis, even though the apostles chose him. He wasn't among those directly chosen by Jesus. He wasn't among the original apostles. Maybe he faced that dynamic. So these were very, very different men. And they, along with the elders of the church, at one point, as is described in the Acts of the Apostles, gathered to discuss issues regarding tradition Jewish tradition, and how it applies to converts to Christianity from the Gentile population. And if you think the traditions that Catholics are very defensive of today are old, many of which are only about 500 years old, not quite 500 years old, the traditional Jewish portion of the early Christian church were defending traditions and practices that were hundreds and hundreds of almost a thousand years old, maybe over a thousand years old, that they received from Moses, who got it from God, was part of the law, advocated by the prophets, and were part of the identifying features of the Jewish faith that were now being discussed in light of the Gentile influx to the Christian faith. You can imagine that council in Jerusalem was not a very tranquil, calm discussion. There were probably a few knockdown, drag-out disagreements among these very hot-blooded Jewish Mediterranean region men. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, but all we hear in the Acts of the Apostles is that one cryptic line, after much discussion had taken place, that's all it says. It says they gathered in Jerusalem to discuss these matters, and after much discussion had taken place, Peter stood up and pronounced the resolution of the council, in which he said, it is the will of the Holy Spirit and ours as well. The will of the Holy Spirit coincides with the deliberations of these men, not of one, but of the collective college of apostles. And so we, in many ways, are seeing that dynamic, maybe not in a conciliar setting, the setting of a council, but among these bishops constantly debating and discussing among themselves 
And we can imagine, we'd be surprised if there are some knockdown, drag-out debates, some pretty heavy rhetoric. It shouldn't bother us, because it's in that that we see the church as Jesus established it, functioning and taking place. And it's in that we see the Holy Spirit taking place. And are we concerned about those who might break off in schism? Well, all four Gospels speak of Judas Iscariot. Now, granted, the story is he betrayed Jesus, but he was such an issue so far into those first decades of the church that while they resolved what differences there might have been between the followers of John the Baptist and Jesus to the point that they really reconciled the role that each one had in relation to the other, Judas was an issue even as late as the ninth decade of that first century when the Gospel of John was written, the last of the four Gospels. All four Gospels deal with Judas as the betrayer of Jesus, but obviously as one who left the company of apostles. Even the Acts of the Apostles speaks of the aftermath of Judas. Matthew has his story that Judas hanged himself. John, uh, Luke has his story that somehow he met death, but it's a little bit different a little bit different version than we see in, in Matthew. But the bottom line is, however it turned out, however Judas turned out, his abandonment, his departure from the company of the apostles was a factor that they had to deal with for decades in those first years of the church's history. So you had these very, very different men. And we're seeing now not 12, not 13 or 14 or 20, but hundreds of bishops around the world, all different personalities, all with different pastoral experiences as priests, assuming they had pastoral experience. Some of them really didn't. Many of them did. Pope Benedict was predominantly a scholar and a teacher, whereas Pope Francis was predominantly a pastor who worked closely with the people. John Paul II was an actor and a philosopher, among many other things. But you see all these different men among the bishops and even with our Holy Father, different personalities and they're not going to come together like mind-numb robots agreeing on everything because that is not how the Holy Spirit works and that is not how Jesus set up the church and its apostolic authority. And that's what makes us one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, why am I talking about that? Well, I'm talking about this perhaps a week later, but we've had enough time to mull it over with the media over what happened in this country, in our Congress, particularly in the House of Representatives, when the Republican majority took over in the Congress on January 3rd. And many found it disheartening that it took 15 votes to come up with a Speaker of the House, especially when it was a foregone conclusion that Speaker Kevin McCarthy from my current state, California, was elected the second California Speaker of the House uh, in a row. But why are we so bothered by the fact that it took 15 ballots? We knew that the minority was never going to elect the speaker because they didn't have the votes. They all unanimously voted for their candidate. Lock, stock, almost robotic. It was a foregone conclusion. None of them would dare. But why are we so bothered that a handful, taking advantage of a slim majority, were able to exercise that clout that they had in a democratic republic to help define the agenda and the caucus of the Republican Party. Whether you're Republican or not, you might be a staunch Democrat. Why are we so bothered by the way the Republican caucus behaved in this, even to the point of the 14th ballot with four voting for someone else other than Speaker McCarthy, two holdouts, two holdouts that held up the election of a Speaker? Two. Why are we so bothered by that? 
If anything, it shows that a minority can have some real clout in our government, that they will not be dominated by a majority. We will not be tyrannized by a majority. We will not be bullied by a majority, even if that majority is within one's own party, that they exercised what their voters gave them to exercise as representatives of the people in a democratic republic. And we saw some proverbially knock down, drag out debates during this process to help solidify the agenda and the platform of that party as they were taking power in the House of Representatives. Why is that a bad thing? We know where many of these congressmen and women stand because of it. Do we really know where they stand if they all agree on everything? Pretty much raising their hand and asking the speaker, hey, Mr. or Madam Speaker, how should I vote? Okay, I'll vote that way. We saw individuality in these people and a willingness to stand up against a majority even if it's one or two of them, or six of them, or as it began, 20 of them, against over 200. That's the kind of leadership we like to see in a democratic republic. And in this case, it's 435 members of the House of Representatives, all from 435 different districts, spread out among 50 different states, each state with its own personality, each district with its own district with its own personality, each member with their own personality. Wouldn't we want to see them exercise that? We didn't elect a bunch of mind-numbed robots. You push a button, this is what they'll do. This is how they'll vote. They exercise individuality and leadership to exercise something that we don't see too much of in our nation, and that is exercising compromise. I recently got into it on uh, my Facebook page with a relative of a relative who is very critical of both parties, and he said... They compromise their principles. We need people of principle. And on the one hand, that's true. We need people of principle. But this is politics. Whenever, when has principle ever been a factor in politics? But because it's not a factor, one can safely say, politics is not about sticking to your principles, insofar as it's my way or the highway. Politics is about compromise. Coming to a compromise. Each of these people, with their principles and their convictions and their affiliations and their values, and their personalities, debating openly, sometimes proverbially a knockdown, drag-out debate, openly, to come to a compromise decision that is best for everyone. And a compromise means you get some things, you don't get some things. You get and you give. And we see that same dynamic played out in our Congress. I wasn't discouraged by that. I was encouraged by it because we're seeing not mind-numbed robotism in which a speaker tells you how you're supposed to vote because you're one party or the other, but members of the party basically standing up and saying, my people elected me to do the job, and even if I'm one against the many, I'm going to do that job. And they push for discussion and compromise. In other words, the Republican Party last week behaved like a caucus, not a cult. And that is very similar, but not exactly. I know there are differences, but you can see that how it's played out in the leadership of our one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Multiplicity of bishops, whether it's a national conference like the U.S. Catholic bishops, a regional conference like the California Catholic bishops, or an ecumenical council in which all bishops come together under the leadership of the Holy Father, 
you will see some serious theological, pastoral debates. Our leadership of the bishops should not be a bunch of mind-numbed robots because we are not a cult. They are not a cult. They are a college. We are not a cult. We are a faith. We are a Catholic church. And so keep praying for our leaders, whether they are political or whether they are in the church. Don't be discouraged when you see among the leadership some division and some debate, sometimes bitter debate. That's what they're there for, to pass laws as our nation's leaders, a collective of a House of Representatives under the leadership of the Speaker of the House. But the Speaker is not a dictator. He's a leader of a collective group of representatives, a caucus, not a cult. And with our bishops, who hold in their responsibility and their calling the safeguarding of church teaching and its pastoral application, we will see some pretty healthy, lively debates under the leadership of the Holy Father, some bitter debates and some divisions. Hopefully not schisms, but divisions and disagreements. That's how Jesus set it up, not a benevolent dictatorship, not a cult, but a college. And that is what makes us, in this country, a democratic republic in which our representatives, we choose, hash out their differences to pass laws for the better of this country, which we hope they will do in the next couple of years. Because both parties now have to prove themselves. Neither one of them got a clear majority and no red wave occurred. In the same way, our bishops must answer to God in their leadership of the people. And it's not a benevolent dictatorship of the Pope. It's not a cult of the Pope. It is a college of apostolic leaders. And so I thought I'd share that parallel I recognized on this, the first week after the Speaker of the House was painstakingly elected by his representatives within the House of Representatives, his representatives, the people's representatives, his fellow representatives. And we are seeing, especially in the aftermath of the death of the Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, divisions that are raising, criticisms of the current Holy Father, Pope Francis, that are coming from people, priests, even bishops. But that's okay. Don't pray that one side wins over the other. Pray that we do not divide into schism, and ultimately pray that by these dynamic tensions, the Holy Spirit continues to work in its guidance of the church, not as a cult, but as a college, not as a pope that's a benevolent dictator, but as the unifying leader of an apostolic council, an apostolic college of apostolic successors, as Jesus established the church leadership to be. So I thank you for listening. Hope this made sense. Hope you found it encouraging and maybe giving some different perspective to what's going on both in the country and in the church throughout the world. And uh, have a good rest of the day, a good week, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.